Welcome to the State Historical Society of North Dakota's podcasts. Opening in the Sperry Gallery of the North Dakota Heritage Center is the new exhibit, The Atomic Age, North Dakota and the Cold War. This temporary exhibit explores how a frightening new age of atomic weapons put North Dakota on the front lines of a global Cold War. In this episode, we hear from Mark Sunluff, a former missileer stationed in North Dakota during 1999 through 2003. He describes his experiences as a missileer and the day-to-day operations of this command. My name is Mark Sunlov. I uh, was commissioned in the Air Force as a second lieutenant in May of 98. And uh, following that commission as a second lieutenant, I went to California uh, for space and missile training. And it was there at Vandenberg Air Force Base well, from about August until April of uh, 99, so August 98 to April 99. Um, that time, the uh, the first part of that training uh, is generic for both the space people and the missile people. Um, after about the first two or three months, you complete that phase and then you move into uh, the either, either the space track or the missile track. And I went for this missile track um, for a couple primary reasons. Um, when you're in the Air Force, you're either support or operational. The operational people are the pilots and the missileers and then the space and the missile field seemed to be the like the most interesting uh, thing for me to do. So then the second part of that training is oh I guess six about six months and that's um, initial qualification training they call it and through that you do some pretty intense uh, book training followed by uh, complete uh, simulator training and you take about 10 to 12 what we call rides uh, that's in the uh, simulator and then at the end of that you have your your check and the check is uh, an evaluation more or less inside the simulator and they throw you a series of events and you respond to them and they determine whether or not you pass or fail so I passed and was assigned to Minot Air Force Base arrived in Minot on April 9th 1999 and was assigned to the 741st Missile Squadron, and that's part of the 91st Operations Group up there in Minot. Um, So it's pretty intimidating when you first get there. Uh, You're young, you're brand new to this, uh, and really for a lot of of the missileers, what, what, what your success or failure depends upon is your crew commander. So when you arrive at Minot, you're assigned to a commander for at least usually the first six months, and you, you shadow and work with that one commander intensely for the first six months. And some commanders are better than others, and some train you better than, than others do. And luckily I, I had an excellent one and got some good training, and uh, he really set me, on my, set me on my way. So kind of talk about what this is all about anyway, a day of work for a missileer. You uh, arrive on base at about... Oh, 7.30, and that's when you'd have a briefing, and that'd be with either the ops group commander or the wing commander, and they'd have all 15 missile crews in there, a crews uh, composed of two officers, usually a young lieutenant and then an older lieutenant or maybe even a captain. Um, you go through that briefing, you get the weather, you go over your mission, any special maintenance or security situations that are going on in the missile field, and then uh, you head out. You go over to the vehicle barn, you check out your vehicle, and of course, checking out your vehicle in the military isn't just picking it up. You got to do a 
complete bomb search of it, make sure it's not bombed or there's no devices put on it or whatever. And of course, the evalu evaluators love to put you know fake ones on there to make sure that you are actually doing your doing your job and actually checking it. So you get your vehicle. You uh, perhaps you take out a chef who's going out to the field with you, and they'll be serving topside while you're down in the underground capsule, or you pick up your, a new facility manager that's gonna be coming on shift, and then you drive out the site. Most of the drives were anywhere between oh, 70 and 100 miles from the base. Uh, a lot of the drives were on dirt roads. Uh, the squadron that I was in, the 741st, was actually, their nickname was the Gravel Haulers, and that came about basically because most all their drives were on gravel roads, which is fairly common in North Dakota. Um, for us, it was it was kind of a pain though because the military uh, regulations restrictions uh, demanded that we drive 25 miles an hour on any dirt or gravel roads, roads uh, mostly due to the number of accidents and mishaps that were that were going on in the field at the time. So it would be a long, monotonous drive out to the field. Once you got there, the facility uh, security controller, the FSC, he uh, or she would check your credentials, make sure you're, you're who you say you are, make sure there's no uh, unusual situations with you, then they'd let you on site. Um, once on site, the on-site facility manager would tell you what's going on, what's broken, uh, what's not working, you know, what's, what, he, what he, his or her plans are for the rest of the day, what kind of maintenance uh, he or she's gonna be doing. And then uh, you'd put your order in with the chef, and you know, a lot of that, the meal is really dependent on the chef there, of course, was a standard menu, but beyond that, you had some, just like any other job, you got some people that want to excel and, and do well and others that just want to do the minimum. So if you got lucky, you'd get a good chef and they uh, would have some specials of the day and different things. So that was that always made for a good alert. Um, after that, you talked to the crew that was downstairs over the, uh, over the phone and they would process you downstairs and once you got down there, you do a complete check of all the equipment building, uh, the LCEB it's called, uh, the equipment building, uh, that's where the diesel generator, uh, the environmental control system that pumps the cool air into the capsule, all that was in, inside the LCEB. You check that out, and after that, the crew would open the door, the blast door, and you'd walk into the capsule. And at that point, you'd begin crew changeover. And that basically was an inspection of any kind of top secret or uh, critical documents within the capsule to make sure that they were all there, all intact, everything was accounted for. And that had to be done before the off-going crew could take off. So once that was done, you'd get the crew out the door. And the very first thing that most crews did was get into their pajamas, which was usually sweatpants, uh, t-shirts, whatever. So the uniforms came off almost immediately. Um, every now and then, you know, if you had expected some maintenance teams or something like that, you'd stay in uniform. But if it was just going to be you and your crew partner, you'd, you'd change pretty quickly. And of course, we always joked that nuclear war would be fought in bunny slippers with vis-a-vis uh, -vis markers. So quite an image. But uh, yeah, and the markers, the vis-a-vis, -vis, everything in the capsule, everything you carried was in page protectors. Uh, everything had a checklist. Every single thing that we did had a checklist. And you were supposed to read a step 
and mark it off. And you marked it off with your wet eraser vis-a-vis -vis marker. And that was up at mine over at Warren. They used what they called grease pencils, so that was a little bit different, but all the same, same idea. And uh, we had thick TOs, three or four inches, one for the regular equipment and then one for the communications equipment. So once you got into your sweatpants and t-shirts, you'd start the uh, equipment inspections. You'd go through and make sure everything was working. The shock isolators that hold the floor up, the floor is suspended in case of nuclear blast. So you'd have to check those and make sure that uh, you know they had all the hydraulic pressure in them and everything was cool. Um, after that, you usually sat down and turned on the TV. You know, this was 99 to 2003 that I was there, so we had TV, we had satellite TV. Um, there was no, you know, previous years there was conflicts between the topside people and the crew because they were all had to watch the same channel. But fortunately, when, when I was there, we all had our own TVs downstairs and, and topside, so it was no big deal. We'd turn on the direct TV, we had all the movie channels, so that was nice, a nice perk. Um, and you'd kind of wait out your 24 hours until the crew came the next day. And we used to like the joke that it was 23 and a half hours of boredom followed by a half hour of sheer terror. And that was, you know, whenever you had a, a crew, a maintenance crew show up at one of your LFs, your launch facilities, that's the, uh, the missiles that are, you know, that you control. That was always pretty intense. You had to process that maintenance team on. They'd give you, you'd get indications over your equipment, what they were doing with the missile. Um, and there were certain things, you know, that they couldn't do to the missile without first coordinating it with you. Like they couldn't disconnect the communication lines. You know, take it LF down is the term for that. If they did that, that was a security violation. Um, you'd have to call them up and get authentications over special units. Um, it's all kinds of stuff like that. So there could be some pretty intense times. And of course, you know, most of us are in our young 20s and here we are at the command of, you know, 10 nuclear missiles at a minimum. So we're all pretty nervous to begin with um, and doing everything by the book uh, as much as, you know, possible. So it, was, it got intense, um, but there was a lot of boredom too where you're just sitting there and chilling out. To combat that, um, most guys and girls got into master's programs, got involved with colleges, and it's really an ideal time to get your master's degree, those three or four years that you're going to be at Minot on crew. So um, definitely, um, as far as subculture, you know, missileers have a great sense of humor, especially when it came to, to pranks. I mean, the capsule was a place where you could mess with all kinds of stuff, um, obviously that didn't impact the, the weapon system, and just leave all kinds of little surprises for the oncoming crew. Um, of course, a favorite was taking the shreddings, you know, the more in the morning you had to do all the shredding of all the, the past documents, and you'd take those fine shreddings and fold them inside their blankets, so when they got in bed at night, they get covered with with uh, those shreddings. Um, you could kill the breaker on the elevator that goes upstairs, uh, so they they get out there and for some reason the elevator's not working. Just all kinds of practical jokes um, kind of lightened the atmosphere, made it uh, more passable. Um, as far as uh, the Cold War and stuff, you know, it was, it was over, you know, 
99 when I got there that the Cold War had ended. There were some pretty intense situations. Definitely the most intense was September 11th. Uh, I had been up all night, which was fairly common. I was a crew commander at the time. It's fairly common for the crew commander to take the night shift. I don't know how that developed. It was definitely, you know, the more uh, tedious shift, I guess, staying up all night long. But And I was going to change over with my crew partner who was sleeping in the in the single bunk. I uh, was going to wake her up at, at 8 a.m., change off and go to sleep. And, of course, that first airplane hit the... Uh, hit the, t the tower that morning, I think about 7.40, if I remember correctly. Uh, but it was basically, essentially, it was right before I was going to wake her. And uh, we got a call over the uh, the Hicks line. The Hicks is the the hardened intersight cable system. And that enabled all of the launch control center capsules to talk to each other. So there was five of you out there that were all connected uh, through kind of like a party line, and you could bring everybody up. So, you know, if something was happening in the news or there was something cool on TV or a game on or something and you wanted everybody to see, you just punch in and, and uh, you know, punch everybody up and you get on there and have a little little party conversation. But anyway, this September 11th that morning, you know, the, the HVC rings, uh, or the hardened voice channel, I think I said Hicks earlier, it was the hardened voice channel, actually. The HVC rings... And uh, they said, hey, a, a plane just crashed into the tower, into this World Trade Center. And it's like, oh, that's interesting, you know. And so we all change the channel. We get it on. And, every, of course, the discussion at the time was, you know, how the hell does somebody crash into a tower like that? You know, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, if not idiotic, you know, what's, what's going on here? And then, of course, you know, sadly enough, the second one, Hits and at that time, I think it dawned upon every, all of us, and you know, probably everybody in the United States, that this wasn't, you know, just an accident. This was intentional. So at that time, and now it's getting past eight, and then you have the one hit the Pentagon as well. Um, at this time, waking up my crew partner, and really the first time, you know, you sit out there for day after day after day. And really nothing happens beyond dealing with maintenance teams and security situations. And all the documents are basically put away. And, but, of course, this morning uh, things started jumping, so to speak, and start going up in, in, uh, in alertness and uh, things start happening. So the messages start coming in and, you know, we're dealing with them and ended up, that was a Tuesday morning, and I was supposed to go home that afternoon, get relieved around noon or one, and didn't get out of there until uh, till Friday. Didn't get back to base till Friday. And what happened is they sent out another crew, and then you basically take turns. One crew's topside for 12, and then they switch with the crew downstairs, and you just keep doing that all week long. So definitely um, something I'll never forget. Of course, the details now are... are probably getting a little fuzzier, but uh, the whole impact of the thing was pretty incredible. And uh, so, yeah, no Cold War, but definitely some interesting situations. Um, as far as, uh, you know, being in charge of those nuclear weapons, it was a big deal. Uh, but, you know, like most jobs, I guess you just kind of, you get used to it. You know, you kind of accept your responsibility. Um, a lot of that's your training. I mean, we were trained relentlessly every month. 
you're tested on your procedures every month. And these are, you know, passing is 100% and failing is anything, you know, less than 100%. And if you missed one or two a month, that was a big deal. And uh, so we're relentlessly trained and drilled and studying all the time procedures. And so it gets to the point where you get comfortable with it. And uh, as far as the ethical and moral uh, dilemmas, you know, everybody dealt with it in their own way. You know, there's, the military has good programs implemented, uh, primarily the PRP or the Professional Responsibility Program or Personal Responsibility Program. Everything's got an acronym and you forget what they stand for. But anyway, the PRP program basically dealt with are you, are you still able to do this job? Are you still able to handle nukes? You know, we couldn't take any kind of many over-the-counter medications. We couldn't take, you know, there's always people watching your, your moods and things like this. So it was a tight program, um, and it made sure that the people out there dealing with the weapons were, you know, always coherent, always had good sleep, or always, you know, weren't going through family or financial problems. So, um, you know, you just, you learned it and you, you dealt with it. So, um, I should say about Topside, you know, when you get out there, it's you and your crew partner, you're the two downstairs, but really the, you know, there's so much that goes on upstairs as well in the missile alert facility. And up there you got the flight security controller. He or she is in charge of all the security for your 10 missiles. Uh, you, when you get an indication on your system, you call him up and he sends out his cops, his, what we called cops, they were security forces. Um, they'd go out, check out the site, make sure everything was, was fine, nothing was going on. Most of the time it was rabbits. Um, they had to keep the grass cut. If the grass started blowing, that set off the security system, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and these kids were, you know, 18 years old, 19 years old. They'd run out there with their M16s and make sure everything was, was cool and nothing was going on, which when I was on alert, we never had any kind of unusual security situations. You know, thank goodness. Um, then also topside, you got the facility manager I told you about, and he or she basically, it's, their site, you know, they take care of it, they keep the walls clean, they keep the, the vacuums going, they keep everything tip-top shape, take care of the equipment downstairs if, if they can fix that. Most of them have prior maintenance experience, so they're, they're dealing with that, that stuff as well. Anything they can handle, they will. And then you, you also have your chef topside. And every now and then you'd get uh, people coming out, you know, VIPs and things like that would, would come out to the site. So.